days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight we're going to talk about Trading Places, the Aaron Russo movie starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy from 1980-something, 83, 84, something like that. Super fun movie, special guest. Is it? I think so, yeah. This can be found at actuallyanarchy.com slash 55. Sweet. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think this is a fun movie that I hadn't seen in a while, and it, it takes a, a whole new light, as most movies do when we watch them, since our conversions to the religion of anti-statism. Speak for yourself. Well, I wasn't feeling well a little bit, er- a little bit earlier, but I... I've since eaten some food and feeling a little better. So you snorted some cocaine and you're back sorted out. You're all, you're all tight. You're high and tight. You're living life. Well, just for just for the moment, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fleeting high, for, from what I understand anyway. You got your head right. All right, you're all good. You got, your headspace is correct. You're ready to go, like a true entertainer. I said, damn. I said, god damn. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Well, we got a few shows coming up. I believe we're going to do Bill Murray's Scrooged, and then we're going to also do a Christmas special, which will be based on the Disney Scrooge McDuck version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, just like we did last year. But this time, the guest that we promised last year intends to uh, fulfill our wish to have him be a guest on the show, and uh, it should be pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. haven't talked to that guy in a long time, and I'm a bit of a fan of his, so it'll be fun. Yeah, awesome. So I've been doing uh, studio updates for the past couple of episodes, and I'm not fully done just yet, but I do have another piece of equipment arriving tomorrow, and it is a articulating microphone boom arm that attaches to the desk. So then I'll be able to have the microphone floating uh, in front of my face, which should be nice. It should seem real pro in here. Well, if you're excited about it, I'm excited about it. 
I do have one of those myself, and even though I don't record using the microphone right now because I just don't, uh, it is nice. It is nice to have it be able to be able to put it wherever the fuck you want it. Yeah, that's what I like. Put it wherever I want it. <laughs> and uh, what yeah. else have we had going on? We just did the Walter Block episode. We did Esoteric Entity. We had Kyle and Salone on. We just did Die Hard with Shaheen. All good stuff recently. And uh, we also have a special guest. It's Trey from the Subversion webcast. You can find his stuff at subversionwebcast.com. Yeah, Trey, what's up, man? How's it going? I just watched that this weekend. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Man, I hadn't seen I, that in so long, and it's it's a great movie. It's an excellent movie. I had never actually sat down and watched it all the way through. I had always just seen it like in bits and pieces on TV, so I never got the full experience until this weekend. And It's a, it's a good action movie. I mean, usually action movies are... I mean, it's got all the cliches, even though it was one of the earlier, <laughs> you know, big action movies. Yeah, it suffers from being so popular that everybody copied it. So yeah. you go back to it and you're like, well, I've seen this movie before, even though I yeah. haven't seen this movie before. <laughs> but it was actually the originator of a lot of that stuff. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I love your guys' show, by the way. Um, I don't know how I happened across it, but, um, you know, I, I usually, um, I've heard Tom Woods say before that he turns off part of his brain, you know, when he's watching a movie or something. Um, and I can totally relate to that sentiment because if you just viewed every single piece of media that you, you know, consumed through a libertarian lens, it would make your world a little bit less interesting, I feel like. Um, but to actually sit down and focus on, you know, the political aspects and economic aspects, well, more fallacies in pop culture, then, uh, then yeah, it's a really interesting thing that you're doing. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah, we sort of fell into it because we were just having conversations and then we ended up re referencing movies anyway. And we we're like, well, why don't we just do that as our thing? Yeah. Actually, uh, now that you mention it, I came across, across your guys' Reed Rothbard RSS feed uh, because I was trying to find audiobooks of Rothbard's writings. And yours was the only one that I saw, at least, that had, or uh, uh, which, which one is it? Anatomy of the State. Anatomy of the State. I, for some reason, I kept thinking enemy of the state, but <laughs> I guess because he is one. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, that was the only place that I could find it. And uh, then I happened across your guys' actual anarchy show at some point, and I was like, hey, this sounds really familiar. And then you guys were talking about Reed Rothbard, and I was like, oh, those guys that <laughs> I stumbled across months ago. So you guys made it out there places, just so you know, back with that old feed. Nice. We did it. <laughs> we, we made it. We made it, Mom. <laughs> we said we couldn't, but we did. <laughs> well, we're top of the world now, and uh, we do appreciate you joining us. And you're you're the newest member of the Libertarian Union, which that's right. We're still not sure exactly what that is just yet. It's just right now it's nine different providers all in one feed uh, on a website. We all have our own podcast feed still, but it's just a, a way of kind of cross pollinating the various shows. And uh, I think it's it's going well so far. We're just gonna let it kind of organically do whatever it's going to do. Right. Yeah, I know it's uh, good to network with other podcasters too because, you know, we're all kind of learning doing this. So, you know, it's good to have uh, people to reflect ideas off of and things like that. So especially other libertarians because most people aren't sympathetic to the nuanced uh, things that we're talking about. So, yeah. So, Trey, tell us about your show uh, and why don't we just, you know, introduce you and, and your show to our audience. Yeah, sure. Uh, my show is called Subversion, and 
It started off as just a general music podcast, actually. Um, and it was really politically sanitized. I really uh, just avoided libertarianism and uh, politics in general because the demographic I was going for were probably people in my city, which is uh, Minneapolis, and they would be more progressive. So I kind of was straying away from my own political uh, proclivities in the content of the show at first. And then after a while, it just got to a point where I wasn't noticing the viewership, I think probably because of the format that I had, uh, and just got more uh, into more, not specifically music, but just exploring how we can interact with entertainment as libertarians and make and produce good content and how we, you know, because we're dynamic people, we like art and, and things like that as your podcast would prove. So uh, to me, I think that's a crucial role that we have to play in the liberty movement is to actually engage culture. So uh, that's the kind of bridge that I'm trying to build there. And right now I'm a pretty bad podcast marketer, so I don't really have my niche nailed down, but uh, I'm starting to kind of get into uh, just general uh, entertainment rather than strictly music. But, uh, you know, the intellectual property thing is really, really hard when you have a music podcast. So I'm trying to get away with uh, using licensed content right now uh, and see how long I can get away with that. But I think it's short-lived. So that's kind so of what I do. You play a lot of music on your show. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I wonder if I'm going to get in some trouble through intellectual property at some point for that. But right now I'm flying under the radar as kind of a smaller podcast and I uh, discuss with, usually with a guest, some sort of topic. Uh, I've had on Rafer Davis recently. Uh, you know, when this last police shooting came out here of Daniel Schaefer, or Shaver is his name, I hopped on for that. So, I mean, just whenever I have time, I try to get on the mic if I don't have an interview lined up. Uh, and I have Prof. CJ coming on, actually, in a couple weeks. So, you know, I've still, I'm, I've got plans. I just don't know exactly what I'm doing with it. So, Well, it sounds really cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. That's something that Robert and I talk about all the time is we need more libertarian content creators. I mean, we're, we're kind of crossing that line. Like we're creating this content, but we're critiquing others' content and sort of trying to tease out some concepts or ideas and make it introductory for people who are maybe familiar with the movies. But Robert is actually an artist and a, a bit of an artistic type, so he's sort of crossing that over even more. He's crossing the streams. Yeah, I'd I, wondered, uh, I had wondered uh, if you guys did your own graphic design and things like that because it's it's really well done. So that answers that then, huh? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, that's all me. Or for the most part, Daniel does some stuff too, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm usually just placing elements or taking bits and pieces and Frankensteining them together. But Robert creates some of the original elements and then I'll place them. Yeah. That's oh, so you both, you both do graphic design then? Or, or well, work on that stuff for the show? It's more Robert does the actual artistic, you know, like pen and pencil, electronic equivalent. And then I take pieces from various spots, including what he's created, and then I'll do it a layout. So like, oh, we need uh, YouTube art for this episode, or we need a banner for Twitter, or we need whatever. I'll dimensionally put the things together. But for the most part, it's Robert's creations. And then I'm, uh, I'm doing the rap game with him a little bit. I see. Yeah, I'm... Yeah, I'm the Dr. Dre, and then he's the the remixer. <laughs> you know, put that way. It's a crucial role, though. You know. Yeah, black and yellow. I think would be my my <laughs> NWA name. <laughs> Speaking of people who just put the uh, polishing or the finishing touches on something, uh, me and Daniel were talking about through messages as the we were discussing 
you know, the pre-show to this, uh, Aaron Russo is actually the producer of the movie we're talking about today, Trading Spaces, uh, which, you know, that's, I found that really interesting when I sat down to watch it with my girlfriend, I was like, huh, that, that can't be the same Aaron Russo, right? The, the Aaron Russo that turned me into a kind of conspiracy theorist, libertarian type. It can't be the same Aaron Russo. Well, it is. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? Yeah, this is the guy that did uh, Freedom to Fascism. I don't know if he did anything else, but I remember seeing that movie back in the day, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he and, died uh, shortly after making that one, right? I died at some point. I don't exactly know the details of his death, but... But yeah, anyway, um, Trading Places doesn't exactly have the same, uh, the same political and social critiques as <laughs> Freedom to Fascism, that's for sure. That's one thing I noticed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it does. No, yeah, it doesn't. But it it makes a bunch of claims, which will be fun because I do enjoy a movie that has a statement or at least makes claims, so that we could either confirm them or debunk them. So that'll be fun. True that. Because you usually don't get that from a you know, some random comedy. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, one thing I just did admire about this movie is that <clears throat> they certainly didn't hold back anything. Uh, and I, I, you know, this is obviously a generational thing. If you watch Blazing Saddles, there's the same uh, sort of looseness with uh, taboos. They, uh, they certainly don't hold back any of those social taboos. So, No, and yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Yeah, these days I don't think this movie could have been made because all the yeah. pandering that the uh, Hollywood left go to to right. fit in with the uh, social justice people. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, uh, uh, Freedom to Fascism, though, I came across that at some point myself, uh, you know, maybe 2007, 2008, when Ron Paul was running uh, his first presidential, presidential campaign. And um, yeah, I think it was the first time where I really got introduced to the idea that uh, the, the Federal Reserve kind of runs the world and that Woodrow Wilson is to blame for practically everything bad in the world. So... Uh, he is pivotal, a real piece pivotal of shit. moment for I mean. me. <laughs> yeah. Even though I watched little bits and pieces of it um, just uh, yesterday or the day before to sort of prep for this, and I think I'd probably disagree with a lot of the assertions that they make in it now, but I'd have to watch through it again and see just how my worldview lines up with it now. Because I think at the time I just sort of took everything it was saying for uh, a fact, and uh, I was starting to get skeptical of some of the things they were saying in there, but, you know. Yeah, that is a good idea. I bet you I, I'd probably be in the same camp with you. I, I remember being fairly, mostly on board with everything in Freedom to Fascism at the time, but I'd probably have some quibbles by now. But yeah, it's, it's still uh, it's one of my formative pieces of media. All right, well, let's get into this. We usually start out with a Google description, so I'll give that a quick read, and then we can um, find if there are any errors in there. There usually are. So here we go with episode 55 of the Actual Anarchy podcast, talking about trading places with Trey from the subversionwebcast.com and also, like I just said, part of the Libertarian Union. Into the Google description here. So trading places, 1983 comedy, just under two hours, 7.5 on IMDb, 86% Rotten Tomatoes, 83% of Google users like it. Upper crust executive, Louis Winthrop III, played by Dan Aykroyd, and down and out hustler, Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, are the subjects of a bet by successful brokers Mortimer and Randolph Duke. An employee of the Dukes, Winthorpe, is framed by the brothers for a crime he didn't commit, with the siblings then installing the street mart Valentine in his position. When Winthorpe and Valentine uncover the scheme, they set out to turn the tables on the Dukes. And that is a Google description. Came out June 8, 1983. Summer blockbuster director John Landis, producer Aaron Russo, in a box office of $90.4 million, which back in that day was actually a pretty penny. 
Any uh, quibbles or qualms with the Google description there, Trey? Uh, I don't see any really there. Uh, it seems to sum it up pretty well. Yeah, it sounds fine to me. Not a whole lot. I mean, it, it, yeah, sure. Let's do this. All right. So the movie, the plot essentially is the Dukes are older people, older gentlemen who are upper crust. They run a trading firm, commodities trading firm, and they make the comment that whether the speculations are winners or losers, they still get paid a commission. So their customers are always paying them no matter what the market's doing, so long as there's trading volume. And these guys have Dan Aykroyd working for them, and he's a Harvard-bred, you know, tennis-playing, white sweater-type guy, and they have this debate between themselves, between the two brothers, on the nature versus nurture. And when they come across the Billy Ray Valentine character, Eddie Murphy, they decide to put an action or an experiment in, in action. And uh, the bet is for $1, $1, Bob, no whammies. So, uh, Robert, why don't you pick it up from there? Okay, so, yeah, the old guys, they're um, traders, of course, and we've got your Dan Aykroyd character, who is this Harvard-educated, upper-crust dude who has his perfect little life, and his butler and his fiance, who is this blue-blood lady, and apparently he lives in the house that's owned by the Dukes. I'm not really sure why, but for the purposes of the movie, it makes it more convenient. And then, of course, then the butler also works for the Dukes. I'm not really sure why, again, why Ackroyd would just have everything be at their mercy, but at any rate, it does. I mean, maybe he owes them a lot. Maybe they raised him up. Uh, the movie doesn't actually say that, or if it does, I, I missed it. But yeah, they, uh, the old guys are going through this debate, which I appreciated that Maybe they were ripping it from the headlines. I don't know. Maybe there was a scientific debate at the time. And, um, yeah, one is saying that, no, what you need is breeding, and then if, as long as you have good genes, the, you'll rise to the top of society and be successful. While the other one says, no, you have to give the person the right uh, benefits and right, um, what's the word, you know, the right environment. Not incentives. Like the right um, help along the way. Like the right environment, right. So, so they decide to prove a point, like Daniel said, and um, have a bet. And uh, what they end up doing is they end up framing Ackroyd for being a drug dealer and for stealing like $150, which is kind of ridiculous. I, I, I'm surprised that more people didn't – I mean, they really must have like hated the guy or the Dukes had way more influence, but they couldn't seem to have had influence. So they're, they're in this – club. They're all members of this big hoity-toity club. So he's a member of this club. They're all members of this club. And so they decide to plant 150 stolen dollars on them. And nobody seems to second guess or question why these bills were like marked with an X or why Winthorpe would need feel the need to steal this $150. So it, it was I don't know if the movie is trying to make a claim about the rich eating themselves or that there are no honor among thieves and they're calling the rich people thieves. I don't know. But it's – or maybe it's just plot convenience as to why all the – all Winthorpe's friends just absolutely desert him. And nobody comes to his defense. Nobody stands up as a character witness. He even goes to his former friends at a club later on and asks them to be character witnesses, and they all give him the cold shoulder. But nobody at all – as a single word, and he's protesting his innocence. And then they throw him in jail for $150 theft, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, okay, so somebody steals $150, yes. But 
nobody just gets slapped in cuffs and thrown away and hauled off. But, you know, of course, it's the Dukes that are actually behind all this whole thing. So, but they can't be seen to be behind the whole thing. So the actual series of events is kind of ridiculous um, unless you know what's actually happening. So he gets thrown in jail, and then they find some PCP on him and claim that he had intent to distribute. And then his girlfriend is bailing him out, and she finds out that he's this drug dealer. And then she's basically disowns him as well um, once she finds out that, um, well, she's kind of kind of doesn't believe it and then kind of wants to believe him. And you now she's still got this meal ticket fiancé guy. She's not sure. And then uh, this uh, prostitute lady who gets hired to kiss him and ask for a fix and that sort of thing by this nefarious mustache twirling guy. I feel like I'm just rambling on, and I really have a point. I had uh, a bunch of notes. I'm sure, Daniel, you've got a bunch of notes, and I know our guest has a bunch of notes. So why don't we just um, take a scene and then dissect it instead of me just rambling on the plot of the movie. All right, good enough. I'll start out with my first note, which is just a highlight on the sort of opening montage that was comparing and contrasting the poverty and the rich. And they were going back and forth and then interspersing a lot of the monuments and freedom-oriented historical uh, places and statues within Philadelphia. And I feel like that was just kind of a foreshadowing for the entire rest of the film because it was really just going to be a contrast between two different cultures or two different kind of socioeconomic um, positions. And I think that this would harken back to um, The Prince and the Pauper. I yeah, think it's- I saw that as well. Um, the, I would just add, I, I just read like a description of the plot of Twain's original work, and it was actually a voluntary arrangement. Uh, between a prince and a pauper. Uh, so that's like the big thing that I saw where the the person who wrote the script and produced this movie, whoever you want to say, uh, sort of changed it to suit an agenda, I feel like. Um, and it, I have sort of a conspiracy about this this movie. <laughs> um, so do, do I, I think... Do it. I uh, well, it. okay, so... So basically, it's, it's, it's making a lot of really compelling progressive points, but as usual with progressives, they have this greater agenda of just completely, uh, you know, putting people into clash, class behaviors and as if people don't act differently than uh, what Marx said that they did in whatever uh, time that he was writing, the late 1700s or whatever. Um, so essentially the way I see it, they're portraying some very... Uh, deep social problems in some very, uh, very simplistic ways that I think might give people, uh, with, especially people in America with probably bad ideas about how things work anyway, the wrong impression about how rich people act in the stock market and just in general and how poor people act. Um, but anyway, I think, I, I think that that theme is very constant throughout the whole film is that they just have these boxes that they put people into and I'm not sure they fit very well. Yeah, the Dukes even went into that where... They were saying, you know, when they run into Billy Ray Valentine, he's like, quote, he's a Negro. He's probably been stealing since he would, since he could crawl. And yes. you're right. They're like lumping everyone together based on their class. And they have like a class Borg-like perspective on things. And anyone who goes outside of that is like uh, against their, I guess, class uh, delineated way of thinking. Yeah. And if you, if you are familiar with Marx, even just in a cursory way, uh, that was one of the big you know, things that he contributed to, which before his time, there wasn't really people who analyzed the socio, uh, the sociological, like, effects of uh, being in a certain class. So, I don't know, I just, I just see a lot of that, like, some framework of the problems that we have today with political discussions sort of getting built 
uh, in in entertainment during this time. And mind you, uh, this is coming out during the early 80s when there was a really bad crack epidemic, especially on the East Coast. So I think that that might have something to do with it. Not really sure. Um, but yeah, just my thoughts on that. Yeah, and then the two brothers, yeah. they were going with this heredity versus environment question, and it was almost as if they were trying to be these uh, progressive social engineering do-gooders to see if they could reform man into their desired outcome. And to contrast what you had said about the Prince of the Pauper being a voluntary arrangement, this was very much a non-voluntary arrangement. So this is like the Dukes are essentially like the government bureaucrats doing helping people, <laughs> quote-unquote helping uh, so I, I find it kind of interesting that, that they do want to do this experiment. And, of course, for plot convenience, it kind of works out like Billy Ray is a street smart, street wise type guy, and he brings his perspective into the trading floor or into the trading environment and sort of has some insight that maybe the stodgy upper class types uh, don't have, which seems a little far-fetched. You know, I, I would think that they would have specialization and, and a little bit more expertise than him, but perhaps, you know, fresh new eyes, who knows. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I think they totally inserted a lot of, like, critical race theory and stuff like that. You know, the, the things that you think only, like, crazy lefty uh, people are learning about on college campuses, I think there's a lot of that doctrine just, like, within the plot or, or within the elements uh, of this film. You know, like, just the whole fact that Winthrop is a upper-class white dude and uh, Valentine is a black homeless guy who swindles people. You know, I think, you know, it's like... I. I I have a hard time seeing the agenda of the people and I really hate to like um, to, to, to try to interpret motive where I have no evidence of it, but it seems to me just the themes of this movie certainly uh, seem to promote a progressive agenda uh, from what I noticed at least. Uh, and, and some of those I'm, I'm of the left. Uh, I, I used to be like an old school kind of uh, Democrat. My, my parents were, you know, uh, very working class, just, all they really knew is that if the market wasn't good, they didn't have a job. You know what I mean? Uh, just sort of like labor uh, union types. So anyway, uh, so I see and agree with a lot of some some observations, I guess, of the left. However, uh, their prescriptions are obviously like really messed up. Like they want to uh, orchestrate from the top down, whereas I would just say let people, let individuals pursue their own self-interest and th that will work itself out. Um, but yeah, I mean, the predominant theme of this uh, movie does seem to ascribe some sort of like divine force that has to come in and intervene uh, to, to change people's uh, class or uh, to promote class movement, which I guess I don't know if that's what they're trying to do, but it certainly, se it certainly seems like it to me. Yeah, that is the absolute plot of the movie. So if this movie is making a claim, and like you said, we can't necessarily say that this is their intention, but I mean, as an interpreter, I think it's fair to prescribe this, this claim that they're making that, that this top-down control betters lives. So, I, yeah, I, I, I have little problem <laughs> making that claim, saying that this is what they're trying to say, because that's, that's actually what happens in the movie. I mean, they, they take the street-smart guy, and then all of a sudden he's this whiz in high finance just by you know, giving him a nice house, a car, a job, giving him things to care about. I mean, I did like when, they, when he first got his house and he invites all these people over, and then he realizes, you know, he's got all these people and they're all having fun. But then he kind of realizes that this is his house. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is like a nice house. I don't want to trash this place. This is mine. And I do appreciate that when you actually care about something, when you actually have an incentive 
you own something, you actually care about how it's used, and uh, then you ended up kicking everybody else out. But, yeah, the, this idea that you just – I mean, it does matter how you treat people, absolutely. But the idea that you can just you know, essentially control affairs to the point at which you just create this ultimate utopia is a fantasy of the left. Yeah, and I noticed how, you know, the Duke brothers, they, they were successful and kind of bored, and they were saying things like, oh, money's not everything, and they wanted to do this social experiment to far-fetchedly uh, try to get the Nobel Prize. But, you know, they were just bored old dudes who decided to mess with other people's lives. And it was interesting to me that, you know, their bet was that Ackroyd would turn to a life of crime. But how they got that set or that that uh, going into motion was they removed all of his uh, opportunities. They took away his right. house, his girlfriend, his friends, his his job, uh, any opportunity to to make money, any yeah, you know, all of his credit cards, all the money in his bank. And it reminded me of the drug war, the war on poverty, uh, occupational licensing, permits, permissions, uh, minimum wages, all of those things that are hurdles or impediments in front of people uh, to essentially remove all of their opportunity to do something that is productive, right? So you're essentially incentivizing people to not be productive. And uh, we've made reference to this on most uh, of our recent episodes, like with Walter Block on Poverty, Inc., and even with Esoteric Entity when we were talking about that uh, Robert Reich movie, that essentially when you remove people's opportunities and you incentivize them to continue poor behaviors or bad behaviors, then you're going to get more of it. So really the trillion of dollars that have been thrown at social welfare programs for the past 40 or 50 years, uh, we don't have much to show for it other than just continued poverty. Yeah, and, hey, uh, and, I, and I do just want to say that, um, you know, I, and I said I'm kind of of the left, uh, and that just more shows like who I'm usually trying to speak to because, um, be, because most of my friends happen to be like Bernie Sanders supporters and whatnot. So I'm always getting into arguments with them. And at some point I ended up coming across, uh, if you guys know who Walter Williams is, Sure. Um, so I came across his, well, I, I watched a video uh, about his book, The State Against Blacks. And Daniel, you were, you were just talking about how, you know, the minimum wage and occupational licensing hurts, uh, you know, uh, restricts the barriers to entry. And that's not just like some conservative talking point. That's like a thing that was legitimately started by labor unions. Like, you know, so if you learn about these kinds of things, uh, you start to learn that the left was actually who created the problem of minorities. And it calls into question if, if that's why they have such a guilt complex where they put their guilt, uh, their historic, their historically, uh, you know, the historical precedent of marginalizing people onto, uh, you know, and they project that onto, onto people, onto conservatives more than anybody, even though they started the right. whole messed up thing. Right, right. And then they, they, they project it onto Mortimer and uh, his brother when in, the, in one scene in the movie where they're signing checks and the Dukes like bemoan all this money that they're paying out. And I think it was, was it Winthorpe who was like, well, you know, minimum wage and everything. And is, is that the most ridiculous statement ever? You've got these high finance guys. Could you imagine a single employee in their company that makes minimum wage? There's like under 5% of the people in this country make minimum wage, and they're like fast food employees. The, the, the most ridiculous thing you could say it's like, yeah, all these, all these high finance guys. It's these minimum wage employees that, are, that they're bemoaning the cost of. <laughs> exactly. The only people making minimum wage are probably the cleaners, and he par probably hires out a cleaning service. Like, he doesn't actually pay the cleaners, you know what I mean? So right. There's, right. Just so much, there's just so much BS in this movie that 
they say like they're throwaway lines and people probably just take them as fact. People who watch SNL every week probably take as fact, but are actually like major economic fallacies that, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame that, you know, no one was probably calling it out at the time. Yeah, yeah probably. They probably it, just let it go. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it was a caricature of what rich evil people are supposed to be like, like uh, when they gave the Christmas bonus to the guy, I think at the club and it was $5 and the guy's like, Oh, $5. Maybe I'll go to a movie by myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, and for, on the one perspective, I'm like, okay, that probably wouldn't happen. People, I mean, on an individual level, sure, they might be like that miserly, but it just showed me that the guy was ungrateful for getting additional money that he wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, sure, it's only $5, but talk about being ungrateful. We run into this with my kids all the time. Like, they don't appreciate what they have. They always want something else or something more. And I almost want them, it, it's really, it's really terrible to say this or even think this. But I almost want them to sort of go without for a little while or sort of suffer a little bit so that they understand what it's like to be cold or what it's like to be hungry. So then when we feed them or when we warm them or whatever, they can appreciate it for what it is. Because right now it's just all handed to them. And so they, they can kind of bitch and moan about it. Uh, because it's, baby. it's this show and not this other show. Oh, it's, it's this candy bar and not this other candy bar that I prefer. You know, it's, it's just kind of ridiculous. Um, and not that they get candy bars. They had candy canes for the first time ever uh, yesterday. But uh, the kind of bars, we, we give them like, um, they're like uh, protein bars. Not, not like protein bars, but like the Costco ones, Nugo bars. Nugo bars is what they are. And they like them, but if they don't get the vanilla one instead of the chocolate one, then they get all mad. Right. Well, and like you've said mean, many times, Daniel, you oh. know, when all their needs are taken care of, then they're free to bitch about insignificant, trivial shit, much like the uh, social justice warriors of today where they whine about microaggressions and make up bullshit like manspreading and mansplaining and things like this because they don't actually have real struggles in their life. Yeah, if we've yeah. gotten to the level where that is a problem, <laughs> then, we, then we should have then solved a whole bunch of other problems before we got to that level. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fantastic if those were all my problems. <laughs> if my life was so great <laughs> that... Uh, that manspreading was the real issue in my life or microaggressions were the real issue. Oh man, my life would just be a, a fantasy. Yeah. You know that, uh, going back to that scene just with the Butler and, uh, speaking of characters, they managed to, in what, 10 seconds, caricature both like just normal black people who work like service jobs and the rich people who are miserly. You know what I mean? Like just showing like they just polarize things so much and, you know, I, I found myself enjoying the movie a lot, but then just having these moments where I'm like, you sons of bitches, why the hell do you got to make it about that right now? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. As if wage competition didn't exist. And if that guy had a better offer, he wouldn't have gone somewhere else. I mean, he's clearly there for a reason. He enjoys working for these Duke guys. It's the best job he could get. They don't have to give him a job. They could have hired somebody else. I mean, what, what, are, what are they complaining about? But there's always something to complain about. Yeah, I mean, take it to the, the Ebenezer Scrooge argument. You know, sure, he was miserly and white, and so he was rich and racist, of course, right? Just like they claim in uh, this Trading Places. But to your point, Robert, Scrooge was the only one willing to hire Cratchit at the price that he was working for. So if anything, Scrooge was benefiting him more than anyone else when it comes to his employment. And similar with the butler and the Dukes and all the other employees of the Dukes. Right. I mean, if it's really that terrible, quit and get a better job. Assuming Take, some that you're, Take some responsibility for your own self. Well, of Ridiculous. course, assuming, assuming that the government hasn't removed your opportunities. Or the Dukes, yeah. 
<laughs> I know what you mean. Anyway, uh, Trey, I think you were trying to take us somewhere, and then we derailed you. And th- there is a train in this, by the way, so we can we can get to that in a little bit. An Amtrak train. Ooh. I, if I had a point, I had forgotten it. But um, uh, my next note here, I suppose, is uh, about that time is when they encounter Murphy's character for the first time. They haven't uh, revealed his name, right? And right. And he... we fir- we first encounter him. Uh, before the Dukes go into their club or whatever, or is this after? I forget where. I guess, uh, yeah, I, I think guess they're it. in the club already, and he's outside panhandling, pretending to be crippled and blind. Yeah, and then uh, it, the event I'm thinking about is when Valentine runs into the two police officers, and uh, I guess I just had thoughts about the vagrancy problems in urban places and how the tragedy of the commons plays into that whole problem. Um, I've heard stories about, you know, huge tent cities in San Francisco and, um, you know, famously, infamously Skid Row. But, um, you know, when in the in the Midwest where it gets really cold, we still have uh, homeless people. Right. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I mean, we can see uh, Valentine doing exactly what you would expect a person to do, I guess, with the uh, high time preference that. Uh, a homeless person would need to exhibit, right? Uh, turning to swindling just to get your whatever you need for the day, uh, your bed at the whatever the homeless shelter because they cost money, I suppose. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot you could uh, bring up with Austrian economics, I think, with this movie to where you can observe people doing exactly what you would expect them to do given their circumstances, I suppose. Um, so I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I was going to ask Daniel. Um, we see Murphy at the very beginning. He's pretending to be... A Vietnam vet, and he's pretending to be blind, and he's pretending to be have no legs. So clearly, he's committing fraud, um, and then he's also begging for money. But do you think, um, Daniel, are you holding him to account for fraud here, or would you say that hey, you know, someone's begging for money, you know, whether or not he's in his actual truthful situation? I mean, you see it all the time if you're driving by like a Walmart corner or any kind of street corner, and anyway, around here, not around here anymore, but on the, like the west side of Washington, they're all over the place. Um, you'll just see panhandlers. And they always have some sign. It's always like, hey, we need money for gas or whatever. And it always says God bless on it. And probably because you get more money if you say God bless on it. Or, you know, every once in a while you'll see a sign that says, hey, I just need a drink. <laughs> why, why lie? But I would say the majority, the vast majority of them are just lying, or at least I assume they are. Um, is it kind of my, you know, it's on me whether or not I want to support them or not obviously. Um, and like you say, if you want to, you know, what you, you support what you want more there to be in the world. But are they, with them not being honest about their situation, would you say that that's like fraudulent and wouldn't be, you know, is that a crime? Daniel, sorry. That's my big, long, stupid question. Big, long, stupid question. I got a big, long, stupid answer for you. Uh, I think it's dishonest, but I think it's also up to the individual to make the decision on whether they're going to offer the money in exchange for the sob story, whether it's true or not. And a lot of people, myself included, may have fallen for it the first couple of times, but then uh, you sort of get hardened over time and realize that, yeah, 99% uh, potential for them lying about this, so I'm not going to give them anything. Uh, unless you like interact with them on some level or know them or, or know that they have befallen some tragedy, you know, like I've given money to people that I know and people who have had difficult life circumstances occur to them, but I've also had somebody on the street in Seattle walk 
into me and throw their leftovers onto the ground and trying to say that I knocked it out of their hand and I needed to buy them another meal when it was clearly not the case. <laughs> like he had to go out of his way, veer out of his way by like four feet to run into me. And uh, so I, I, I don't think it's a crime, but I also generally don't believe people when they give me a sob story like that. Okay, so if, if someone tells me a lie and in return to that lie I give them money, you're saying that a crime has not committed, been committed. Well, I mean, on a certain level... Maybe. I mean, it's not like you have a real contractual relationship here. I mean, you're not expecting a whole lot of benefit for yourself other than maybe the you exactly. feel good about helping somebody and then you find out that they actually used it for drugs or some, something else bad. I mean, if anything, you're enabling them. I mean, wh what recompense would you want from that? Oh, I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's a crime, honestly. I think it's kind of like a buyer beware type of situation. I think, I think whenever you give money to someone, whether that sob story is true or not, you're gaining that psychic benefit when you hand over that money. And you might be getting swindled, but at the time, you feel good about giving that money over. So that's all you're really expecting. You're not necessarily expecting for that money to change their life. I mean, maybe it'll help a little bit, your $5 or whatever, but really you're going after that psychic benefit. So I don't think it's, I think, I think you're right. I think it's dishonest, um, but I don't necessarily think it's a crime. Trey, do you want to weigh in on this or do you want to move on? Um. I guess I'll say that you could probably demonstrate a case in court that you were defrauded and you could probably get uh, restitution. You could probably argue for it, but I think most of the time you're probably not even going to be able to find the person to uh, reclaim your damages. So, I mean, I think uh, like you guys were just saying, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, maybe you could make a case, but what are you really going to get back? And it might it's probably going to be more trouble for the person seeking restitution. You know, what's the most you give a homeless per person? Like 20 bucks if you're feeling really nice? Like... <laughs> Yeah. So, but no, I mean, I, I totally get it though. Uh, and, uh, it, it is, it just, it always feels bad when like you're going to help someone out and you know, it's in some ways, how is it really much different than if you gave your money to a church and they, you know, went and bought, uh, the preacher went and bought a new pinky ring or something, you know, you'd probably be pretty pissed <laughs> off about that, but, but no, I mean, yeah. uh, it's it's just all about proportion. I would say you could probably call it uh you could probably call it a tort rather than a crime. I would say. Fair enough. Yeah. So you you so had mentioned. Have, okay, oh, go yeah. ahead. Okay. Well, Trey, okay. you had mentioned the um, tent cities, and when I was living in Seattle a couple of years ago, we don't live there anymore. But there was a tent city just down the block from us, and it was only there for maybe six or nine months. Um, the whole authorization with the city was they had to move every so often but it definitely changed the neighborhood. You would see more drug needles. You would see more um, people pissing <laughs> openly uh, on the street corners, on the sidewalks, etc. And I also encountered somebody, and when I was parking my car in the alleyway behind the house, they approached me and were, they gave me the sob story about, oh, I just need to get some gas money so I can get back home because I'm on this, um, I have this anklet thing that monitors me and, and I'm supposed to be home by 6 p.m. Otherwise, it'll go off and I'll get in trouble with my parole officer or whatever. And I didn't really have any money with me at the time anyway, but I had heard all these stories before. And then he said something like, you know, it's a real shame in this neighborhood that, you know, houses keep getting broken into, man. And so I was like, all right, wow, here's five bucks. <laughs> That's all I got. Don't break into my house. <laughs> it really felt like, like this implied, uh, implied threat, like, all right, so until you pay me, uh, you might get your house broken into. I don't know. Wink, wink. I guess while we're on the subject of um, shady homeless people, uh, I wasn't really going to bring this up, but I guess since it's 
uh, up. Uh, I okay. I went to Texas some years ago, and I was taking taking a Greyhound back from Austin. And when we went through Dallas, uh, there was a a bus transfer at Dallas, and there was a there was some kind of like. I don't know, just an area of the city they let the homeless folks take over, and there were homeless folks everywhere in this uh, in this public bus station in Dallas, right? And um, and I was out on the smoking porch having a cigarette, and this dude asked me for money. So me being just like a normal guy from the sticks, I didn't know what was what. Like I was a skinny, I was skinny at the time, had a tie-dye T-shirt on. I pr- probably looked really unthreatening. I had a backpack on me, um, and the the guy saw that I had money in the wall in my wallet and like I he was begging for money I gave him a couple bucks and then a couple minutes later a bunch of people came around the corner like five people and they were all like threatening to stab me and stuff and, like to give me the rest of the money in my wallet so um yeah I guess uh bottom line of what I'm saying is I recognize the problem that homeless people can be in cities uh and I found that out the hard way because I didn't even hardly know that homeless people existed uh, where I lived. I mean, in some capacity, you know, I knew they were a thing, but you know, I'd never been mugged well, by one. Up, so anyway, that brings up an interesting thing. And what I kind of wanted to get into next is um, because the next thing in the movie is that Ackroyd and um, Murphy bump into each other. And in my view, Ackroyd like painfully, stupidly overreacts to bumping into some guy. Even if he looks, you know, like a homeless person, whatever, he overreacts and acts like he's getting mugged just because he's in this close proximity to this person. This person bumped into him. And so, of course, he starts yelling and screaming and escalating the situation. This sounds like what happened to me with the guy with the leftovers. Very much. But um, Murphy's sitting there going like, no, I didn't, I didn't, I don't want, I don't want your briefcase. I'm just, we just bumped into each other. And for me, it was like, Ackroyd, nobody's as stupid as Ackroyd acts in this, in this scene. Just because somebody looks a certain way and you bump into them, honestly, this is an honest mistake, do you immediately take it to that next level that, oh my God, I'm a rich white person and I'm being robbed by this poor black person? Now, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe these situations do exist. And maybe this movie is more realistic than not. But for me, it would seem absolutely ridiculous that this guy would be like, oh, he bumped into me. Oh, I'm being robbed. Help, help, police. And the guy's trying to give him his briefcase back, and he won't take it back. So then he calls for the cops, and then Murphy just takes off running. I don't know why. I mean, plot purposes. But in reality, he would just be like, what? I just bumped into the guy. What are you going to charge me with? But, of course, then the movie would probably throw him in jail for being black or something. I don't know. But did that, did that scene seem ridiculous to, as ridiculous to me as it was to you guys, or did it seem more realistic, Trey, because of your no. encounter no, no, I, I totally agree with you. That was totally out of proportion. I mean, uh, people kind of, you know, people run into you all the time, and yeah, I don't think anyone's first reaction is that they're, you know, getting pit-pocketed or mugged. You know, I, yeah, I yeah, think his, his response person. was definitely not proportional to the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, somebody, even though he gets ferried around in a limousine, he still lives in a city, and the population density is, is quite high in cities. I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but it is. And you just walk out on the street, and you're going to get bumped and jostled, and your elbows are going to bump up against and brush up against people all the time. And, yeah, anyway, Daniel, did you, did you see you okay with that movie, that scene? Oh, I just figured it was part of the plot to keep it going. You know, you, you had sure. to get them interacting and you had to get it to be an overreaction and Eddie Murphy to un, un uh, or improperly be booked into jail, et cetera. And then culturally right. appropriate Kung Fu while he was in there. <laughs> Excellent observation. 
There you go. I did not notice that. I mean, I remember him doing the kung fu. I didn't remember. I didn't think he was culturally appropriating it at the time. Well, I, I'm making fun of people who think cultural appropriation is like this high crime. Like, if anything, oh, I know you are. Uh, uh, SJW now watching this movie would be like, oh yeah, he belongs in jail for doing the kung fu. <laughs> right. Well, and then the uh, the whole encounter starts though because he's trying to get away from the first group of cops. He sees the second squad car coming, and that's what you know prompts him to start taking off and run into Ackroyd. So, right. over policing, I guess we could talk about there. But I think it, it's weird. The uh, poor communities and and things like that in urban centers both have a problem with over policing and a whole lot of crime. So it's like you know, I don't know yeah, what. <laughs> you know, what exactly the whole, uh, it, I think the, the real answer is that it's not, you know, a binary problem of too much or too little, but anyway, certainly agree. With I'm that. just on a ramp. I'm just rambling now. It's what we do on the show. Where are you guys from though? I, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, well, we both live outside of Seattle, so I'm like oh, two okay. hours away you and he's you say that now, four or five hours away. Okay. But uh, yeah, he lives in an area where he has very, very limited internet access. It's a satellite, mm. and so the speed is slow. And then also there's a capacity issue, or not a capacity, but like a hmm. he has a data cap, like for the month before it starts yeah. charging more money. Right. And it's pretty steep. Yeah, no, that that sucks. You know, in the way I see it, um, net, you know, the net neutrality proponents will uh, try to say that that's one reason why why we need net neutrality so that we can get high speed internet out to rural areas. And the way I see it, government's the only thing getting in the way of delivering high-quality Internet to rural people, you know? Like, I don't know all the minutiae behind it, but there's got to be some sort of government interference stopping. You know, telecommunications is like one of the most regulated industries in historically in America. It's got a shitload of taxes, highly burdened, and it all has to do with, like, the breakup of Ma Bell, if you know about much of that at all. Yeah, yeah, uh, Rothbard's got some commentary on that in some of his lectures. I mean, the whole creation of Ma Bell and um, other uh, cartel arrangements are due to government, and there's geographic monopolies that mm -hmm. are a result of it. And there's also um, incentives on the equipment. So they were incentivized to keep older equipment around longer than mm -hmm. was otherwise useful, so they weren't um, advancing technologically as quickly as they might otherwise have done. And it was only the deregulation in the 80s and the split of Ma Bell that actually introduced some additional competitive forces and advances in technology. I think that there was one estimate that we got cell phones 40 years later than we otherwise would have because right. of these types of regulations and the mm -hmm. intellectual property bullshit and, and all yeah. the rest of it. Um, but uh, cable TV is also related to that. And um, so this ties into net neutrality because they're claiming that uh, we have crappy service with Comcast or satellite or whatever because of the companies. Now, the companies have a protected arrangement with the government, and they actually favor having net neutrality, and they favor having additional regulation because they're already entrenched and can absorb the cost and the, the um, burden of those things that will keep out upstart competitors from entering the market and competing with them on price or quality or innovation. And so they're all for this. Um, and it's Absolutely. really unfortunate. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the, the crazy thing is that when they signed in net neutrality, which essentially was just the designation of internet as a utility under Title II of the uh, Communications Act of, of some kind, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but essentially what they did in 2015, and you talk to most net neutrality proponents, they think stuff like this has been around since like the 90s or some shit. 
you'll get a different answer from each pro net neutrality troll out there. Um, but a lot of them don't even know that this wasn't signed until 2015 and that it was basically putting restrictions on the, it was putting the same depression era regulations on the internet as we had on Ma Bell during the breakup of, of that monopoly, which was state created. Um, but the, the, the most messed up thing about it is that, yeah, it treats every single mom and pop ISP as if they're Comcast or AT&T or Verizon, you know? So I don't even think like progressives are so detached from the market that they don't even understand that these heavy handed regulations hurt the little guy more and restrict competition. And I think that's the most frustrating thing to me about my lefty friends is that they like they talk about things that were afforded to them through the market and they completely miss it. Like I've got a lot of like vegetarian and vegan friends that hate the market. And it's like they are provided these alternatives in their diet because of the market, because people like them created a, a demand for a different dietary, you know, regimen and they were delivered and they were catered to like, and they're <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're, you know, I don't know. They're basically weighing it on hand and foot by the market, and they refuse to even they, they refuse to even acknowledge that it does anything good. Yeah, I'm back. I was just going to mention that. Uh, yeah, the lefties don't understand their own power in the market. If yeah. if they if they I mean even if you know like the the net neutrality they they love net neutrality they just love it they love it so much then if it's so popular the market will give it to them like they could just get together and be like hey we wish a company had these net neutrality rules would some company want to play by these net neutrality rules and then we'll throw all our money at that and then that's what company i'm going to go for great that's a completely voluntary way to get what you want lefties instead of using the violent arm of government to coerce everybody into getting what you want and only you want mm-hmm. it, it really frustrates me that yeah the market does nothing but bend over backwards for lefties and then they take it for granted and then they cry about it and complain about it when the, all the power is in their hands. Okay. And uh, you mentioned Skid Row during the episode, and that was actually a road in Seattle. It's called Yesler Way. Yesler Way. And it's where they would um, cut down the trees in the forest and then slide them down the hill along Yesler oh. Way. And it was called Skid Row. <laughs> oh, I always thought it was just that place I heard about in L.A. that you don't want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and at the bottom of the hill was the port, and it was also where um, it's a place called Pioneer Square in Seattle. It's all the older buildings, and yeah. there's an underground there because they, um, I think they raised the level of the ground somehow, so there used to be buildings underneath, and then they raised the street levels, and underneath that became opium dens. Huh. So big sordid history there, lots of prostitution, drugs, gambling, etc. So history history in Seattle is pretty interesting. Just north of Seattle, like a half an hour north, there's a town called Everett, and they had a tent city, and it was like behind a Home Depot or something like that. And when the tent city moved out, um, some cleanup crew found like a thousand drug needles, and they had them displayed on this tarp and like, look all this, you know, we found in this tent city. So nasty. Yeah, pretty <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, and then they just, you know. It's almost like they made a political thing about it, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't want to sound heartless. I think that homelessness is a problem, but I think it's more related to government yeah. creating uh, artificial you know, price escalations in housing and having restrictions and zoning laws and licensed contractors and all oh, this absolutely. other bullshit that makes housing and renting houses uh, far more expensive than it would otherwise be. They also eliminate opportunity with the drug war, uh, licensing, occupational, whatever. So... I blame it squarely on government. All these problems. Well, and then even if you think about it, if we even step back a little bit and think about why individuals make the choices that they make, I mean, 
we have a culture which is populist in nature, right? And it's almost like people expect jobs to be handed to them on a silver platter. We just don't think about production the way, you know, the ideals of America and what the founding of the country allegedly was, uh, you know, all about. People have completely uh, have completely separated themselves from it. You know what I mean? Like, like when someone loses their job, you know, they don't think, how am I going to produce for myself? They think, how am I going to find a job producing for someone else who will give me money? You know what I mean? Like it's never right. people's, it's never people's initiative to actually go out of their way when they lose employment or their life is upended to, to better them themselves. They expect someone else to be doing it for them. They think it's society's uh, responsibility to take care of them. So I think it's like a two part problem where you have these really perverse incentives, incentives from government. And then on top of that, people just think that the government is supposed to take care of them. So it's like, I think the first thing that we have to do is just make people realize that they're not victims. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes, obviously people are, right? I mean, people are victims of theft and uh, assault and uh, by the state and by private actors. But I don't think that that should define a person's, you know, a person's life. I mean, like I grew up poor. I had drug prob- problems growing up and I don't know. I managed to just realize that I was in a, cyclical problem. I was in a constant high time preference, uh, schedule on a low time preference, uh, goal. So, you know, obviously something has to change. Um, and I just think more people need to realize that they're responsible for themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. And and there's a whole lot I want to respond to, but, uh, I think that you and I have a similar um, background and even Robert as well, because we also grew up sort of left leaning thinking that Mm -hmm. that was the more free speech, free expression, you know, it was the conservatives trying to dictate um, yeah. law through religion, et cetera, you know, being the stodgy, like imposing their morality on us. And now it's like almost flipped a little bit. Um, but regarding the uh, the right to a job or they expect a job, you see it a lot in college campuses where people will go and get a degree in just whatever with no concept of whether that will actually be an employable thing. Mm-hmm. They just think, oh, I got a degree, I got a college degree, so therefore I get a job. Yeah. And then when they get the job, if they get a job, then if they ever get fired, they're like, well, I had a right to that job. So then they're going to sue to like try to get the job back or whatever or claim discrimination. It's just yeah. craziness. Um, bullshit. But I think you're right. It is people need to like look within themselves and see, okay, what am I going to do to provide value either for an employer or for someone else so I can earn value for value, you know, the Iran Iran, Iran thing. Um, And to that end, I actually work on something called blackand.gold. It's a website I've put together that's about being able to earn a living by solving people's problems uh, Mm -hmm. via um, information. So like, you know, people are searching for how to solve like back pain, knee pain, acne, whatever. There's information products about that. There's losing weight. There's healthy eating, diets, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also people who want to learn how to do internet marketing type stuff. And so I'm, as I'm learning it, I'm documenting it as I go along. And mm-hmm. I just posted a bunch of stuff about like Facebook marketing um, just today, actually. All right, Daniel, take us to the next, next scene you want to talk about. Well, so now we've got both players in jail, right? We've got Eddie Murphy in jail and he gets bailed out by the Dukes and we've got Aykroyd in the jail and they planted PCP on him, but everyone refers to it as cocaine and Aykroyd always corrects them and says, no, it was PCP, which of course, makes it sound like he's saying, yes, it was mine. <laughs> uh, right. And uh, the Dukes invite Eddie Murphy into their car with them, and they bribe him with whiskey and cigars. And he he asks the driver, he's like, is this some kind of thing? Are, are, are they all a bunch of faggots? <laughs> which I don't think you could say uh, today in, in a movie, which 
Troy, uh, Trey, you were talking about earlier where Blazing Saddles and this movie and there's another one recently that we watched where, oh, The Shining, where they um, talk about the cook when uh, right. Grady and, and Nicholson are in the in the bathroom at the Overlook. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that seems to have shifted in the culture where you can't say certain things anymore, but you can be far more gratuitous in other ways. Like, it seems like media and movies and things have constantly been pushing to be more graphic, more violent, more nudity, um, more outrageous sort of situations and things that they'll say, except for words that have now become taboo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the left really has become the language police and the the proper police. And the, I mean, every society has got its cultural norms, but the left has really taken it to the most ridiculous degree and has really taken the reins on this one and is really trying to be the, the uh, behavior police. I guess in well, a world where... Where the FCC can't control the internet, even though you know it'd love to, I'm sure. Where just like it controls radio and TV, so then the the left comes out and it's like, we'll be the FCC now, <laughs> trying to control everybody. Well, and then even if you just think about, you know, the people making this movie, like I had observed, I think they're making some progressive points. So it's not hard to assume that these people are progressive that are writing it. And look at how liberally they use some of this language. It's almost like they're calling out these problems that they see by like shining a light on it rather than sweeping it under the rug, which seems to be the, uh, you know, the practice nowadays, which, you know, it, as you can see in that movie, they're like making anti-racist jokes. You know what I mean? By actually like putting a light on what they see as racism. So it's just a completely, uh, the paradigm shift is really stark. If you watch this movie and go on Twitter today, you know, you see that juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. I did like, before you ask your question, Daniel, I did want to say that I did like the um, the voluntary disassociation. As ridiculous as it was, when Ackroyd, even though he was just accused of a crime, usually you know you're you're guilty only after you've been proven and you're actually innocent until proven guilty. Although I'm sure a lot of people would like that to be reversed. Um, I did appreciate that all his friends and like the bank didn't want to associate with him, an accused drug dealer. At least it was a voluntary type of thing. So there would be like cultural norms that would keep, you know, people acting reasonably well towards each other, even though I think, you know, selling PCP shouldn't be illegal, of course. But um, I appreciated that it was, you know, voluntary disassociation, kind of ostracism, which is, I'm a, which I'm a huge fan of, ostracizing people who misbehave, which is why I choose not to associate with politicians and other thugs. Yeah, and social ostracism. Social ostracism is a very powerful remedy, and whenever it's brought up in discussions, especially with statists and leftists, they always find it wanting, but I don't think that they fully understand that if, if all of their friends and, and the banks and, and hotel people and taxi drivers would refuse to associate with them, that it would be a, a pretty impactful thing on their daily lives. It's, it's the most effective. I think it's far more effective than just locking someone in a cage for a couple of years. Choosing to not associate with someone until they get their shit together or until they start acting right, if they mistreat people, not wanting to associate with them, like you said, not being able to buy food, not being able to get a cab, not being able to have friends, talk to your family, get any kind of that support, not have a job. That kind of pressure is overwhelming to any kind of social animal like mankind. But before I derailed us, Daniel, you are going to ask a question. Yeah, I was going to bring us to when the Dukes take... Billy Ray to the house 
and they're trying to convince him that it's now his house and these are his possessions because Billy Ray's going around and he's stuffing his pockets and he's like, oh, this is real nice. And he's like sort of off screen or whatever, stuffing his pockets full of stuff. And they're trying to convince him, no, this is yours. This is your personal property. This is your stuff. And I thought that that was an interesting point to make because what you had said earlier is true, that that had previously been quote unquote Ackroyd's house, but it was owned by the Dukes and they just as quickly and just as easily kicked him out and removed him from that place and those things were not really his they're really the dukes because the dukes get the final say in, in what happens there and whether Ackroyd can be there or not and then later on in the movie when they're talking about um, replacing uh, Valentine to get him out of there uh, and he overhears them he then realizes that it's really not his you know they tell him it's his and then the, that party happens that tragedy of the commons things happens where everyone's trashing his Persian rug and uh, destroying the house, and uh, he says, everyone, you know, get the fuck out, because it dawns on him that he now has some ownership in it. It's his house, at least temporarily, and so he has a vested interest in maintaining the quality of it, the cleanliness of it, uh, the br free from brokenness of it, uh, so he has an interest in maintaining the house and kicks the people out. But I just found that that kind of was an interesting thing because the Dukes really owned the house. They kicked Ackroyd out, they put Murphy in, and then they were going to kick him out. And it reminds me of, um, you know, I quote-unquote own my house, or I'm about to in the next year and a half, uh, but I still have to pay property taxes on it. And if I don't pay those property taxes, then I don't get to live here anymore. So in essence, I'm still paying rent to live in my own house. So do I really own the house? Well, you're beholden to these thugs who claim ownership over it. But I would say that you actually do own it. Just because some mafioso comes along and says, hey, we own this house now, so you need to get out, that doesn't mean that it's legitimate. No, but I do pay the ransom so that they leave me alone. Sort of like the guy who asked for the gas money uh, and, and told me that the houses in the neighborhood get broken into pretty often. I paid that fee, that insurance fee, just like I pay the IRS when they tell me to divulge how much income I've made, and then they determine how much money I uh, get to keep um, from what I've earned, I'll pay that just to not have further hassle. It's like buying protection money. It's it's hush money. It's protection money. Can I get it something is. out of the way here and just say that acquiescence isn't consent? Because I think people confuse those two quite a bit, especially our minarchist brethren. 100%. Just because you're doing something with a gun in your face doesn't mean you agree to it. Yep. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's becoming a lot harder to even say that among some libertarians, but here we are. Um, here we are. One thing I noticed too, and uh, I'm not sure if you guys noticed this, but it almost seems like Valentine never, never really, it's like he's always skeptical of what's going on. Like he never fully is on board, you know? D did you guys get that sense that they were trying to communicate that? Yeah, he was, he was naturally skeptical. He figured that there was some kind of racket involved saw them as bookies, but then he quickly goes from that to superstar banker guy, and I think he becomes more on board after that. Once he's like accepted by them, he begins to believe it. It all happens very, very quickly. For me, it seemed that way, but at first, for the first couple of yeah um, interactions, he was definitely skeptical of the whole situation. Did you, are you saying that you thought it was he was skeptical the entire time? Uh, you kept getting that sense, and it, or at least I did. Like, when he kicks everybody out of the house, I don't know, it, it, they just have these moments where they leave the viewer to sort of question what's going on inside his head, you know? And it seemed to me, like, other than just him realizing that, oh, I have ownership of this place now, 
that he was also just like, well, what the hell is even going on here? And who am I and why am I at this rich person's house for no reason? I just didn't see why he would have that introspective moment uh, other than, other than you know, part of that being, you know, part of it. Can I just derail the conversation a little bit? I just want to make a point that if this movie was written today, Ackroyd wouldn't have been framed with $150 in theft and PCP. He would have just been accused of sexual harassment, and then all this would have been true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And also, I think Eddie Murphy would have been um, in more trouble with how aggressively he was panhandling. Like, he grabbed that lady's um, skirt when he was begging for money uh, when he, right before he encountered the police officers that first time. And then there's one other instance where things got a little bit aggressively physical that uh, I don't recall exactly what it was, but it just seemed to me that that was a bit too much. When he was grabbing uh, Ralph's legs, maybe, when he was, like, hugging him? Is that what you're thinking of? Could be, yeah. Yeah, could be that. Yeah, he was certainly, uh, he was certainly assaulting people's person when he was <laughs> panhandling. I probably wouldn't give that guy five bucks. Then again, I don't usually give panhandlers money. So, all right. And one yeah, last thing: the cops were even manhandling Ackroyd. They were like throwing him to the ground and having him strip and all that stuff. But I guess that's normal. Oh, hey, by the way, did you guys notice when um, Clarence Beeps when they brought him to the? I don't know where the hell they were at. It was almost like they were just like in a high school classroom and they were doing lineups there and doing uh, like preliminary arrests there. But anyway. Um, you see Beaks like over and like uh, whispering to the cop, and it was almost like I don't, I didn't know if he was bribing him or like I don't know exactly what he was doing, but then he handed him a folder of some kind. Did you guys notice that? Yeah, wasn't that to just yeah, was that like giving him the PCP to plant on him and that sort of thing, or I don't, yeah, I, I'm not, I didn't really know I, what, but it seemed like some sort of collusion between the two. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't tell exactly what was going on, and that kind of bugged me about the movie is that I wasn't quite clear. You know, maybe it's just my uh, the way that I see the world, but I want to know what kind of dirty stuff that cop was up to. You know? <laughs> well, and there, they, this movie glosses over quite a bit, especially at, at the end, which we could either skip to right now or we could wait to get into. But um, at the end, the whole stock trading bit uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I'm I think sure we, we got can... other things to talk about before that. Well, we can start to, start to slide into that because I do have a, a hard stop here in about a half an hour. Because it's bedtime for the kiddos, and i got to help out with that. So, so what do we got? we got uh, downtrodden Aykroyd. No one will help him except for this prostitute played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And we got Eddie Murphy working for the Dukes. All of a sudden, he's this amazing superstar, and he's using his street smarts to come up with uh, these winning, uh, winning trades. And Aykroyd ends up getting a gun, and he thinks that Billy Ray Valentine is the guy who did this to him. He doesn't realize it was the Dukes who had put this in motion. And so he intends to go and like kill Valentine. So he shows up at the holiday party drunk and dressed in Santa outfit and uh, he's stealing food and stinks real bad. And uh, it reminded me of probably how you felt last year, Robert, um, when we recorded our Christmas episode, you were super hungover. Oh yeah, that was terrible. I wanted <laughs> to die. Yeah, I'll post that down in our show notes page. It was pretty hilarious. Um, but you were a trooper and you stuck with it and still did the show. I'm a professional, uh, damn it. That's right. Um, so then Billy Ray at the party, so Ackroyd goes in there, threatens to shoot Billy Ray. He's trying to, um, put drugs in his uh, desk to frame him for being framed. And, uh, Ackroyd then runs off and, and then tries to commit suicide. Uh, but while that's happening, Eddie Murphy's in the bathroom and he's smoking a J from what Ackroyd had planted. And then the Dukes come in and basically reveal their experiment. 
and throw the N-word around and also say that they're going to kick Billy Ray out of the house and they're not sure if they're going to get Aykroyd back or not after what he's done. And so then Eddie Murphy goes and finds Aykroyd and uh, tries to tell him about what happened, but Aykroyd like, tries to kill himself. So let's pick it up there and then, then we'll get into the um, commodities trading. Yeah, so... Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say then, then yeah, uh, Valentine shows up at Ophelia's house, I think is her name, and yeah, they find that Aykroyd Winthrop is dying in the bathtub, and then he wakes up and is recounting his, um, his ordeal, and then notices Valentine in the room and starts choking him. And you can imagine, if you were in Winthrop's situation, how you would develop this conspiracy theory, right? I mean, sure as hell seems like it's this, this crook who he had seen on the streets that was getting him back for, you know, putting him in jail. So you could totally see why he would have that notion. Um, yeah, that seemed like a realistic thing for me, for Aykroyd to see as if this guy is some sort of shyster who's taken his life to be, yeah, full of enmity toward them, for sure. And then uh, a bond is, is formed between those, those guys, right? And then um, at some point, there, uh, Aykroyd is cleaning and playing with a, with a you know, lever action or a, uh, whatever kind of shotgun it was, but basically he's playing with a shotgun, almost like they're planning to to go and uh, raise and raise the Duke's home or something with that one shotgun, um, which I'm sure they're plenty protected against a lone man with a shotgun. But they come up with a better idea when they somehow, by some miracle, happen to be watching TV and notice Clarence Beeks going into the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they it dawns on them that, oh, the uh, uh, this guy was on the payroll for $50,000, for something, and they put the pieces together and figure out that he's going to get some agricultural report. Uh, and I don't know if we've really made this explicitly clear, but uh, the commodities traders that these guys are, they're trading in agricultural commodities. I think I did mention that earlier. Um, so, so yeah, they are inextricably tied to the Department of Agriculture. Uh, so, yeah, they see beaks, beaks going there and come up with a plan to instead undermine them economically rather than try a terrible plan which looked like was going to get them all killed, or at least uh, Aykroyd's character. Right. So this plan is to get this, intercept this information that Beeks has bribed some official for or whatever, and they pull this ridiculous, like, switcheroo with all these, with, with Aykroyd doing blackface and Eddie Murphy playing this Cameroonish dude and and then uh, the girl playing this Swedish Bavarian. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it gets, uh, gets fairly ridiculous and a little bit slapstick. But um, I, I, we're running sort of slow on, or late on time. So if we could just uh, talk about this ultimate plan of theirs. Once they get this, this report, they find out that the winter hasn't been as harsh as – or if it, even if it was harsh, it wasn't going to affect the, uh, the orange juice crop. But they give the information that it has affected the, the crop to the Dukes. And so their plan is to get them to bankrupt themselves or bankrupt them somehow on this day of trading. But my big issue with it is they don't have a whole lot of money. The Dukes control about $340 million worth of capital for this deal, for this day of trading, where they want to corner the market on this orange juice, which they think is – you know, going to be in short supply, so the price is going to go up. But all they have, all our heroes have, is about 100 grand 
from the, the nest egg that the butler has and the nest egg that the prostitute has. So they start off this day of trading at this World Trade Center, where I know Daniel's got something to say about that. But they start off this day with about $100,000. So when the day starts trading, the, the price is going up to like a 140, and then all of a sudden they start selling. Okay, you sold about $100,000 worth of stock. And then everybody realizes what's happening, and then the report comes out, and it says it won't affect it. And so then the, the price drops drastically. It goes down to like 40 or something like that. And then they buy it back up. So they sold high and they bought low. And somehow, through the magic of movies, this turns $100,000 into super rich vacation time for our heroes and bankrupts the $340 million that the Dukes had somehow. I mean, even if, even if the Dukes bought, spent their $340 million at 140, which was the peak, which wouldn't have happened, but even if they had, and then the price went down to 40, yeah, they've lost a couple hundred million, but they still have got tens of millions of dollars. I don't know. I had issues with it. Um, did anybody else have issues with that whole scene? Yeah, it wasn't credible, I didn't think. I, I, don't, I don't even know how futures trading really works. Uh, I mean, the minutia, at least. I mean, I get the basic concepts, but it just doesn't seem like that would really happen, and you would imagine that they would be trading like through their LLC or whatever, and they would have some kind of insurance, you would think. Like, you know, you don't just operate firms like that without some kind of, some, some, you know, some kind of contingency, you would imagine. I, I guess I don't really know how it works, to be honest. But, I mean, yeah, it just doesn't seem likely that these savvy commodities brokers are going to just get their shirt handed to them from one bad deal of orange juice. Like, that just doesn't seem credible. I mean, even if you were putting a lot of chips on this agricultural report that you got prematurely that you would you know you wouldn't put yourself out in the cold so it doesn't make sense to me yeah for these old stodgy like conservative type guys to all of a sudden turn into vegas gamblers and bet their entire nut on this one thing seemed a bit ridiculous to me but then also the entire mechanics of what actually happened really got glossed over for me it didn't it didn't seem credible at all that all of a sudden they're you know the the comics or the the trading thing that they built is now they're destitute and they have no credit. Are you kidding me? These two old rich guys aren't going to have credit from all kinds of places. Uh, it just seemed ridiculous. And that they wanted cash at the end of trading day. That seems like, I don't know if that's true or not, but that seems completely ridiculous. And so it's on the spot. All their assets get seized by just some random dude. Okay. But I know you want to speed things up for a movie, but it just, it just seemed, hopefully people weren't looking at that as any kind of reflection of reality. You know, unfortunately a, uh, a piece of legislation was passed because of this movie. Did you guys know that? No. Well, it wasn't necessarily passed, you know, because of this movie. Uh, it, you know, I, that's a little bit of bad phrasing. It was, uh, let me just get it up here really quick. It was part of Dodd-Frank, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, yeah, let me very quickly. Sorry, guys. No, that's fine. You find it. I'm interested to hear this. So, uh, the Eddie Murphy rule, as it came to be known, later came into effect as Section 136 of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street uh, Reform and Consumer Protection under Section 746, which dealt with insider trading. So they noticed after this movie that there were no actual statutory laws which restrict, the, uh, which restricts commodity brokers from getting inside information from the producers. So essentially this is what th this movie is actually why America has insider trading laws, or at least it's what inspired some 
savvy uh, public sector entrepreneurs to pursue. So unfortunately, that's one result of, uh, you know, result of this movie. So, wow. and I don't Daniel, really know, I know enough you. about it to, to really talk about the negative effects, but I'm sure there are some. I'm sure that this isn't just as simple as, you know, producers trading. I'm sure it's some restriction on free speech, but again, I don't sure know much sounds about like it. it. Well, Daniel, I know has got some rants, or at least has ranted in the past on um, insider trading. So if you want to go take the reins on this one, Daniel. Well, I mean, it is an infringement on free speech, so to speak, but... Uh, you know, my, my question remains regarding this movie is why is the Department of Agriculture a thing that's getting a report to begin with? Like, what business is it of government to be involved in this in any way? Um, in a, you know, a free market scenario, I think that there would be entities that would be trying to have their ear to the ground and, and take assessments of how production's going and that would help inform people's decisions in trading in the futures market. Um, from what I understand, the futures is essentially just they're speculating to a degree on how much um, volume is going to be produced at a future date. So it's like a future delivery. So in, in this movie, they talked about April delivery for orange juice on trades that they're making in January. So they're making trades on what will be available in four months. And this helps to smooth out fluctuations in, in pricing that are direct, more directly related to supply and demand in the immediate uh, so having futures trading helps um, even that out, smooth that out for everyone. So in essence, futures trading is actually a very helpful function. But in this scenario um, where the Dukes are basically buying insider information from the government itself, uh, that wasn't technically a crime until this Dodd-Frank thing that Trey was just telling us about. But uh, this is also why the Dukes were willing to commit as much money as they were because they thought it was a legitimate report. So they were like betting the house on this thing, including all of their credit, which is why there was um, that line of dialogue where the guy said margin call. So they were betting their credit line as well. And so when uh -huh. it didn't pan out for them, that was, that was when they were overextended. So it wasn't only their actual assets, but it was also their entire line of credit that was um, on the table, as it were. Okay, that makes more sense then. Yeah, so um, essentially this trade happens all in the span of, you know, what seemed like a very short period of time. The whole movie seems to be in a, just a very compressed time. Um, but uh, these guys lose their $394 million, their entire business, and somehow the uh, Valentine Winthorpe Ophelia and Coleman was the butler's name, turn what was roughly hundred grand into millions and millions of dollars and uh, end up doing their thing on the beach where they say, looking good, Billy Ray, feeling good, Lewis. Indeed. So I know we sort of hodgepodged around and started talking about homeless people <laughs> for, for much of this episode, but why don't we get to the uh, summary and review, and Trey, I know you've listened to our show before, so you probably know we do a black and gold rating, so why don't we start with you, give us your over, overview, and then your, your rating, and then we'll move on to Robert. Um, well, I had a really hard time, I was thinking about what I would rate it as, um, because I actually, I've despite the many points in the movie where it really, uh, it triggered me, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And, um, and I found myself enjoying the movie even, you know, despite those things. But I think in the long run, because of the agenda of the people that were writing it, uh, and just, you know, some of the things that were, uh, some plot holes that were for, you know, expediency of the plot, but, you know, sort of just makes one scratch their head and, 
you know, wonder how the characters got into that situation, uh, such as uh, a big one was what you were talking about, Robert, which was Winthorpe living in one of the Duke's properties. I found that really strange. Um, but anyway, I think I'd give it a, a black and red uh, just from the perspective of, uh, I mean, if I'm judging it purely from my anarcho-capitalist leanings, then not a really big fan of the implications of this movie. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair judgment there, sir. Um, I, I'm going to do nothing but shit on it, and then I'm going to probably give it a black and gold. <laughs> but what I have to say is, uh, yeah, like we've mentioned, this is a fairly progressive type claim that this movie's making. Um, but the biggest problem for me, I mean, despite all the economic fallacies, which are, I think, you know, are quite harmful. I mean, unfortunately, you know, yes, people are responsible for themselves, of course, and they're watching a comedy. And if they actually do kind of glean any kind of economic truths from it, it's kind of your own fault if you do that. But it's unfortunate. Yeah, you got this comedy that's kind of disguising truth. And that's what, you know, the Daily Show has tried to do and that sort of thing, which I used to laugh at all the time, but now I look back and cringe. But um, so there's that. But the main problem for me was that I didn't think it was very funny. And maybe that's me being removed from the 80s that far and me being removed from the progressive kind of stuff that far. But on top of all, but beyond all that, I still enjoyed it um, as, a, as a movie to discuss. I still thought it would be a good uh, show episode. I thought it was a good movie to talk about despite being you know, kind of terrible. So it's, it's a black and red for me, but it's a black and gold for a show movie. So I did enjoy it for that aspect, but I, hopefully nobody watches this and thinks it's any kind of you know, reality. Daniel? Wow, man, you guys are pretty harsh on this thing. You're harsh in my buzz on this. You can um, still enjoy it. Yeah, you know, I, I did enjoy the movie, but I've always been a Eddie Murphy fan. Well, his older stuff, of course, like the, the later stuff was, was never very good. Anything after, say, Beverly Hills Cop 2, not so good. <laughs> or, or Another 48 Hours, which was also not so good. But, uh, you know, this movie, I liked that it had something to say. And I think that it would, it's still playing out today, even in libertarian circles. You know, is it nurture versus environment? Is it IQ? Is it culture? Is it race? Is it whatever? And it's become this big kind of dividing line uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, my response usually is, well, let's just get government out of the way and see what happens. Um, and I think that would solve, you know, most of our problems like we were referring to earlier. If manspreading is your biggest problem, then uh, you're living a, a, a very, very comfortable life uh, if that's the thing that you have to complain about. So I think let's take, take the big things down first, which is uh, let's get some, you know, let's try human freedom. Uh, for a change. You know, we've had thousands of years of various degrees of slavery and oppression, and some of the uh, vice has been loosened in some respects, but it's been tightened in others. So this movie sort of plays into that. It does have a lot of economic fallacies. It does seem to have some class warfare, some race baiting, some um, kind of loose language that you couldn't use today, but I still found it to be entertaining. Aykroyd's great. Murphy's great. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is pretty good. The hooker with a heart of gold. Uh, with a, she's very business minded as well. She's like, I've got two more years on my back and then I can retire. Like she's saving her money. She's not um, one of those types that is the typical, what you think of in, you know, when you think of prostitutes, like, oh, they're probably have a drug problem and spend every money, every little bit of money that they get. Uh, she, she was definitely had a uh, low time preference and was working towards the future. So I thought that can I that jump was in here. Just a second. Just a go second. For it. I just got to jump in. Um, I know inflation has really devalued the dollar a lot since the 80s. But she had $40,000 in savings, and she said she had two more years. And she was like a 24-year-old or something like that. She was playing a very young person. 
I don't know what kind of world she's moving to where she can survive on that for the rest of her life. But anyway, unless she's super savvy at investing. Anyway, oh, sorry, sorry to derail you, Daniel. Go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll respond to that real quickly. Um, she had said she was going to invest that money in, um, I think, treasury bills or something. And at that time in the 80s, this was when uh, Volcker had raised the interest rates. And I think it was something like 15% or 18% or something. I'd have to check it. But essentially, if you put money into this, you're going to get that 15 or 18% for 30 years. So that's that's decent, you know. That's beating inflation for the most part. So I think if she figured she was going to have 100 grand in by then, then and and uh, back in the 80s, you know, $20,000 a year was, was decent money. They said uh, when Valentine got hired by the Dukes that they were going to pay him $80,000 a year, and that was like crazy money back then. So Right, I, I, right, I right. Well, well per year, but I mean, you know, I don't think she's accounting for inflation when she's considering retiring with even $100,000 in the 80s. But who cares? This is a small quibble point. I was just interjecting a dumb thing. Keep going. Yeah, interject your dumb thing. The other thing that I I I had meant to bring up earlier was when um, Billy Ray is being shown the house and they're like, these are all your things. And he's playing with that that vase and drops it. And he's like, oh, that stupid vase, that probably wasn't worth much, was it? And they say, oh, I think we paid, what, $35,000 for that? And he gets this look on his face, and then uh, one of the Dukes is like, "Ah, uh, but we insured it for fifty thousand. So look at that, we're already up fifteen grand." I don't think it works that way. But uh, then they said, then Eddie said, "Oh, you want me to break something else?" And they go, "No." So that just reminded me of the broken window fallacy, the the Krugman Keynesian, you know, destruction creates uh, prosperity narrative that. Sure. Uh, is just total garbage. I mean, just go back to Bastiat or Hazlitt on that one. But uh, just, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling here, but overall, I think this is a black and gold movie. It's it's one of those ones that it sticks around with you after a while. You can always go back to it and watch it. And sure, it's not as funny as, as probably it once was, especially watching it with, with ANCAP eyes. But I still think that this is one of Murphy's uh, stronger stronger movies and Aykroyd as well. I mean, this is back when Aykroyd was doing Ghostbusters and things like that. And uh, I just, I enjoyed it. So I, I'm going to go black and gold on this thing. Yeah, I, I like think I'd have sense. to agree. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Jump in there, man. I just I, I like the scent on the show. <laughs> I, like I was just going to say I was just going to say that uh yeah, that's a good point that the acting was really strong in this movie. I mean, I think overall the production value is really good. Um and I mean, I, even despite the the flaws that I had and I think the movie was was put together well. I mean, as far as a cohesive story and getting the listener or the watch or viewer engaged and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah, it was well told for the most part. I mean, it skimmed over things that I wish it had focused a little bit more on. And But you can't really do that when you're trying to, you know, tell a comedy, also give an economics lesson. But I think you can throw in nuggets of truth here and there and still tell a story. But that's not the story they told. Like we said, it's, this is probably written by, like, some SNL guy back in the day, or at least for that audience. And uh, so what else are you going to expect? But, yeah, there, Eddie Murphy and Aykroyd, I mean, they're stars for a reason. They did a good job. Curtis did a good job. Um, you know, I enjoyed it. It was still entertaining, but I still also kind of a progressive shit show. So not as bad as other movies we've seen. No, definitely not as bad dumb. as some others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's, let's wind this one down. So, uh, Trey, why don't you just remind our audience what your show is and how they can find it, and then we will close this one out. My show is called Subversion Webcast. Uh, I explore how us libertarians can create good, uh, entertaining content, as well as explore some current events and sort of topical uh, things. I hate the wars. I'm super anti-war, so you can expect to hear a lot of that. 
I forgot to mention as well, I'm on Twitter. That's where you can see me say some pretty edgy things. And uh, I'm a lot harder on there than I am on Facebook. So that's probably where you would have a lot more fun following me. Uh, my handle is at intoxicated, and that's with an eight. Uh, I-N-T-A-X-I-C-8-E-D. So that's we'll have I'm a link. Saying. We'll have a link in the show notes page yeah, so yeah, that yeah. people don't have to like try to rewind the tape <laughs> and play that back a few times. Yeah. And, and then, you can uh, also find me uh, at www.subversionwebcast.com. All right, excellent. Also on the libertarianunion.com and the Facebook page there is libertarianunion1 uh, on the back end of facebook.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I've got to go put the kiddos down for bedtime. So thank you, audience, for joining us for the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 55, talking about trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, this can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 55. If you enjoy what we do and want to support us in some way, give us a rating or review on iTunes or YouTube. You can also go to our tip jar page, which has a bunch of uh, affiliate programs that we participate in, also links to our Patreon page where you can get super cool bonuses like the Rothbard Repository. Uh, there's a meme stash that Liberty Weekly put together with us. Um, you can also get pre-show and post-show content, which we call Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Which And uh, I don't know, guys, the, the final word or the final goodbyes from, uh, from you, Trey, and then Robert, and then we'll sign off. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, guys, and uh, thank you to your audience for listening to me rant at them. Thanks for coming on, Trey. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening to everybody. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. That's a wrap. Wrap it up, B. All right, guys, thanks for uh, joining us, and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do